Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, how Arizona's marijuana industry has grown since legalization. Recreational sales of marijuana became legal in Arizona in early 2021. According to Arizona Department of Revenue data, monthly sales have topped $100 million every month since. As a result, the state has taken in more than a half billion dollars in taxes. All this while marijuana remains illegal at the federal level. So how does an industry grow this quickly while navigating a legal gray zone? We start today's show with Ann Torres. She's the executive director of the state's leading cannabis industry group, the Arizona Dispensaries Association. I started our conversation by asking her how the industry looks now business-wise. Well, I think the good side of the marijuana industry in Arizona is that we have 10 years under our belt. Since adult use has passed, it's just allowed consumers to utilize cannabis for a variety of reasons other than the limited amount of qualifying conditions that exist in Arizona. Originally, when I started in the industry, I was not a proponent of adult use. I thought it sort of might deplete from the medicinal value of the plant. However, there are a lot of people who could benefit from cannabis and either their doctor won't allow them to use it or they don't know how to get a medical card, or perhaps they don't have a qualifying condition here. And one of the ones that stands out right now is autism has never been an allowable condition, although we do have some legislation to try and put that forth this year. So in 2020, recreational marijuana became legal here in Arizona. As you said, the industry has grown. We now see dispensaries in a lot of places. How has the industry changed you know, it's, it's interesting because for adult users, as a consumer, it's really going back to what is your comfort level with marijuana and helping consumers to understand where to legally buy cannabis is really critical. We've had some pop-up shops around the state, brick and mortar shops, delivery shops. Even recently, we're seeing people put folding tables with a little tablecloth out at street fairs and things, and those are illegal operations. And those would be the most risky for consumers to go to. If they go into a licensed dispensary, they know for sure these are products that have been vetted by the Department of Health in some format. They are appropriately dosed. So all of the things that allow for you know a more pleasant consumer experience would happen when you're purchasing from that regulated space. You know, you mentioned adult use and the stigma. Because it now is legal and regulated in a similar way to alcohol, have we seen a change in the stigma in Arizona? What really has changed as far as the stigma is we're seeing folks who may have used cannabis in their youth coming back to it. So perhaps they were teenagers and they tried cannabis early on or they were in college and experimented with it and then they stepped away from it because it was illegal the other side that's really come to fruition is people understanding that there are some differences when you use cannabis for things like just relaxing versus alcohol. So there's some very simple baseline things, but I think sometimes people are also looking at the after effects. I don't wake up the next day feeling kind of groggy and let down. And so we're seeing more and more folks kind of trying that, especially in the older demographic. In the past, I've talked to some accountants who specialize in working with dispensaries. 
and they say the hurdles are not small. Have we seen any changes as more and more states are legalizing adult usage, or are there still a lot of hurdles that just aren't going away that aren't there for other businesses? Yes. There are banks that do participate, but it's limited in what they can do. It's very burdensome for them to do it. Um, Our fees are higher. Oversight and auditing is much more intense. It has to be in order for the bank to show the federal government that this is a legitimate uh, transaction going on. And there are still business operations, even in Arizona, that don't have banking. And so they are 100% cash, which is problematic in so many ways. That cash movement is very risky and problematic in the industry. And then the other really big pain point is taxes. The state of Arizona's tax relationship with the industry seems relevantly fair. Um, Some states overtax, and when you overtax an industry like this, it just drives the industry right back to the black market. California's really experienced that. So I want you to look in your crystal ball for a minute. What's the cannabis industry look like for Arizona and maybe nationally going forward? Well, I think some things that we're going to see change is where the state wants to have their focus. And in Arizona, the Arizona Dispensaries Association and our membership, which is about 80% of those license holders, is really focused on a balanced marketplace with supporting the medical market and the adult use market. Nationally, I think the best thing that we could look at from the federal government is things like relief for safe banking. We're a legitimate business. We hire thousands of employees across the country. Over 21,000 are plant touching in Arizona alone right now. And I think that the industry will continue to grow. I think it's going to have its pain points for certain, the more that consumers understand how to use it safely, where to buy it safely, and the more attractive that it becomes for consumers to feel safe about using it and having conversations with their doctors about their use of cannabis. That was Ann Torres of the Arizona Dispensaries Association. The ADA started as a group for companies who handled the retail side of medical marijuana sales, but has grown to represent the industry from growers to sellers. Growth and diversification in the industry doesn't stop there. An example is Noble Herb, a dispensary in Flagstaff. The company has expanded to include producing its own lines of marijuana edibles and concentrates. Ryan Hermansky is the founder of Noble Herb and Pure Edibles. He spoke with Buzz producer Zach Ziegler. This industry seems to have boomed in the last two years. How's business been for you since recreational sales picked up? So recreational sales uh, has been fantastic for the industry. The medical market, there were a few barriers to entry that made it challenging for some people to gain access. There's a recommendation needed from a doctor, you know, a fee paid to the state. The combination was kind of time consuming and somewhat expensive for a lot of people. Recreational being introduced allows anybody over 21 to come in. It's been definitely a game changer for for the state. You produce your own line of edibles and also have a line of concentrates, too. So what made you decide to get into that along with the retail side of things? Uh, Pure Edibles is a, is a fun story. My partner, Doug, he was a practicing attorney. I was in medical device sales when we were awarded a license. We entered a lottery basically 12 years ago when medical marijuana passed uh, in 2010. The nature of the industry on how it started, we'd have 30, 40 patients a day. The business couldn't really afford to have three owners and operators. So Doug and I kept our day jobs. 
We realized after a few years that the industry had picked up, you know, there's more opportunity. We wanted to explore us coming on full time. So launching a pure edibles was our way to kind of create a new revenue stream. So we could basically quit our day jobs. The National Association of Realtors actually just put out a report saying that it's more common for companies in the marijuana industry to lease property rather than buy. You have this beautiful building just uh, on the edge of downtown Flagstaff. Obviously, a lot has gone into it because I remember it being a Mexican food restaurant (laughs) when I was in college. This project couldn't have been cheap. Why do you decide to buy property rather than do what seems to be the industry standard and lease? It's a complex answer to that question, but the main reason people lease versus buy is the access to capital. We can't qualify for a loan due to federal banking rules. The reason for people leasing versus buying is access to capital. So for us to buy this building, we were able to work with the building owner, bought it from him, and he's carrying the note. So that made us able to do that. Otherwise, you're looking at hard money loans that can be double, triple what uh, a normal mortgage would be on a commercial building like this. So access to capital is is a huge hindrance in the industry and definitely affects people's decision making. I can imagine, especially stuff like, you know, a lot of times small businesses will be able to get qualify for SBA loans, <laughs> things like that. That's yeah. probably off the table for you. For sure. No SBA loans. All the government money that went to all small business owners through COVID, we did not qualify for any of that just because of the nature of our industry. On a side note, just to further your point, we just lost our payroll company, Paychex, one of the largest payroll companies in the world, is now backing out of our industry. We've been open as a business for 10, uh, and we just lost them along with anybody else that was using them in our industry. So we'll, we'll be on our, our third payroll company. You know, minor hindrance, but it's another good example of some of the challenges we face industry-wide. You mentioned your payroll company. You've mentioned banking. The finance side seems like it's got to be a tricky thing for uh, someone running a business in this industry. Yeah, it is. There's no question. You know, I applaud all small business owners. You know, we all face the same challenges. Um, I feel very fortunate to be selling a product that everybody's aware of, right? We obviously didn't invent marijuana. It's been around for longer than any of us. So the product we sell is relatively well known, which is great. But from that standpoint, you know, we, we certainly have a lot of extra challenges um, on from the financial side, the real estate side, the banking side, tax side. You know, all those just make it more challenging and more frustrating than a, your standard mom and pop dry cleaner, or Circle K, etc. Are there other ways that we don't think of that running a marijuana dispensary is different from businesses like that or, you know, a mom and pop pharmacy or a liquor store down the road? You know, the, the banking's challenging. Not being able to get a loan, I, I think, would put most most businesses out, right? Like, the, especially a small startup, the hindrance of, you know, not taking credit cards is a really big deal. We're cash-only business. Taxes is a big thing. We have uh, something called 280E. So one of my favorite little government faux pas here is, you know, we are federally illegal as an industry, but have to still pay federal taxes. Since we're paying federal taxes, we're stuck doing this 280E exclusion, which does not allow us to write off our cost of goods sold if it's involved in selling of marijuana products. So we're a federally illegal industry that still has to pay federal taxes and also cannot write off a lot of the things that any normal business could. One thing that might be a bit of a silver lining in this is I'm sure it probably scares off the R.J. Reynolds or major pharmaceutical companies from trying to get into this industry. I mean, is there a hidden benefit in it 
in that way at least. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, I would definitely agree with that. The reason you're not seeing Philip Morris venture into marijuana, in, in my opinion, is exactly that, right? They're a federally regulated company already. They're on the stock market. That prevents a lot of the big boys from coming in here. Safe banking passing would change that. And I think you would start seeing a lot of those big companies come in on the alcohol, tobacco, pharmaceutical side, buying up dispensaries. So for now, it, it does keep them out. And I think that's great. It allows us to operate as you know a small business owner and, and not worry about competing. We still certainly have the multi-state operators. So, you know, there are the big boy dispensary organizations that have 40, 50 dispensaries under their ownership. That's kind of the big boy in the industry now. When Safe Banking Act passes at, at some point in the future, I have no idea when that will be. My expectations are that will get gobbled up by the tobacco, alcohol, et cetera, industries. What would be the biggest change in the future for the better for folks like yourself? I'm very happy with where things are right now. Change is, isn't always good. I personally would be completely content just kind of keeping things how they are. Federal legalization, depending on how it was done, could be amazing. It could be exceptionally detrimental. Without seeing language, it's really hard to say that, oh, this would be such a good thing for the industry. I think the industry is doing really well right now. I think products are affordable for patients. I think it's readily accessible in a majority of the states. I mean, I'd like to see all 50 states have some sort of program. That would be the, the biggest thing I'd like to see. It seems crazy in 2023 that you need to wonder if the state you're traveling to has access to marijuana. It has become such a natural part of people's day-to-day -day life, you know, helping them sleep and helping with anxiety and appetite, etc. You almost get complacent and forget that I go to the state next door and I can't. That was Ryan Hermansky, founder of Noble Herb Dispensary and Pure Edibles in Flagstaff, speaking with AZPM's Zach Ziegler. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. We're looking at Arizona's growing marijuana industry this week. One feature that advocates of legalization often pointed to while campaigning for voter approval was the ability to increase the safety of cannabis products in the state. Along with legalization came rules about what can and cannot be found in marijuana products. To learn how growers and processors ensure that they have a product that Arizonas can consume safely, we went to PlantSafe, a marijuana testing lab located in a nondescript office complex in East Tucson. Taylor Coomer, PlantSafe's director of operations showed us around the facility. Nothing really too exciting happening up here, just manager's office. And then as we move on back here, here is actually one of the first uh, areas. This is our HPLC suite. This is where we do potency analysis for all the cannabinoid content. So THC, CBD, CBG, CBN, that sort of thing. That's all happening in here. This is arguably, I, I don't want to say the most important of the methods, it is what most people care about from the consumer level. Most people, right, you, you know, want to know what you're buying or what the exactly, dosing is, if exactly, it's an edible or whatever. Exactly. And so that's what's happening in here. We've spent a lot of time for our purposes doing a lot of internal R&D uh, prior to getting up and running to make sure that our methods are dialed in completely. It's actually somewhat tricky to do this analysis depending on the type of product because you'll experience what's called matrix interactions, matrix effects, 
For example, edibles can be a challenge. Topical products can be a challenge. Is that because of all the other things that are in them? Exactly. It, if it's a gummy, the corn syrup or whatever. Exactly, exactly. Is. I mean, basically how this instrumentation works, these compounds, in this case cannabinoids, is what we're concerned with. They will refract ultraviolet light in a very specific way. And so what happens when you start to get into edibles, topicals, any product that has a bunch of other stuff in it, just because we're testing and only concerned with cannabinoids, that doesn't mean that's the only thing that exists, right? Like the base of the lotion, sugar in a chocolate, all of these other ingredients that are chemically distinct, obviously, from cannabinoids can potentially elicit some sort of effect that could mask the true concentration of the, you know, in this case, we'll call it THC or CBD or any other cannabinoid. A lot of time needs to be spent from any lab to really dial in that those processes. How long a process is that? A, a courier or a client brings in something that needs to be tested. I'm guessing this is not a, yeah, you know, go grab a cup of coffee down the street, we'll have it done for you in 15 minutes <laughs> uh, kind of process. If you were in a, you know, an isolated setting and there was just one sample in the facility, it's actually, it doesn't take that much time. You can go through the sample prep process in about an hour, and then the actual analysis itself takes only nine minutes for that sample to go through the column to get blasted with the UV light and to, for it to do the analysis that it needs to do. Now, with that, however, it's not just one sample because alongside that one sample, now you have a whole set of uh, quality control injections that are required. It is always a balance of maximizing cost versus efficiency uh, from a time perspective. Now, as I said, we're kind of skipping around, but basically once we go from intake, the samples are then sent into here, which is our accessioning room. And so for a full panel, we require about 10 grams of product. And so that 10 gram stays in a 10 gram format in the intake. In here in accessioning, that 10 grams gets split up into what, half a gram for potency, half a gram for pesticides, half a gram for metals, half a gram for E. coli, salmonella, aspergillus. When someone, a client asks you to test their product, do they say, we just want a potency test or do you run for, to use the medical term we've all heard in the doctor's office, the full panel? Um, most tests that come in are full panel or full compliance panels, as uh, some people refer to it as. That regulation is uh, dictated by the state regs, also the AZDHS, uh, Arizona Department of Health Services, yeah. But anyway, as we continue back here, um, and here we've got one of our microbiology suites. This is where, now you're familiar with, we've got our QPCR in here. Um, we've got Beatrice and Tony in there working on either salmonella or aspergillus. That is what we use QPCR for. And so uh, from Micro's perspective, it goes from accessioning back over there. Um, then they do the initial prep, they add the initial broth, then do an incubation step. Then they'll, in the case of salmonella and aspergillus, they'll come in here to do the QPCR. Everybody became familiar with PCR testing thanks to COVID. Right. So basically you're looking for the DNA of the salmonella, of the E. coli or whatever. That's exactly what we're looking for. And so QPCR or PCR in general for people that are less familiar does exactly that. It takes 
strands of DNA, specific sections of DNA from these specific organisms or specific pathogens and amplifies that and, and replicates it many, many times. In doing so, eventually it will get to a point, if something is in there, it will get to a certain point where it's replicated enough, there's enough concentration of that DNA in there to where all of a sudden it's flagging, it's here. Anyway, so as we continue to move back, uh, here is our heavy metals suite. And what these are measuring is lead, arsenic, cadmium, and mercury are the four analytes of note for the state of Arizona for cannabis products. Other states, they have a longer list. Um, some include like chromium, nickel, copper, those types of things. This process is interesting. It requires a um, very aggressive, uh, what they call a digestion step using nitric acid, where basically it requires you to take the sample and completely dissolve it. So it comes back positive for E. coli or, or whatever you don't want to see in it. Right. What happens at that point? So if it comes back positive, we are required to report that as is, and it's on the manufacturer, of the whoever supplied us with the sample, to make a determination at that point. There are really two avenues depending on what it's failing for. There is either destroy the batch and destroy the product. In some cases, you can actually remediate the product. It's most common to do this from harvest because that is probably the biggest opportunity to introduce microbes. The grow conditions of the facilities are warm, humid. That's exactly what a, a cultivation room looks like as well. Also, you can functionally remediate in certain ways. What a lot of people do is they'll take flour and extract the oil out of the flour. And so by doing that, you can functionally remediate or remove a lot of, you know, if there's any live microbes or anything like that, pathogens. Let's say you can't remediate, then the only other option is to destroy the product. You can look up instances where the state has come into labs in the past and found results that were overlooked previously and this product happened to already be on the shelf in a dispensary. And so in those instances, you'll see a product recall process be enacted. And the state just did that recently, and then they pulled the recall back after that, I think. There was a product recall recently, and I actually believe it was for something related to the microbials. In an ideal world, the systems are in place to minimize any potential risk. That's why we exist, to ensure that the product that you're consuming as a consumer is as safe as possible. But so long as there are no heavy metals in it, no E. coli, no right. whatever, right. shouldn't be in there. Exactly. Only the, the stuff that should be in there is in fact in there. So yeah, we, we can take a step in here and if it's too loud, we can just come right back out. Yeah. So back in here is our main chromatography suite. This is where we uh, are doing our pesticides and mycotoxins analysis on this side. And then on that side is where we're doing our residual solvents and terpenes analysis. These methods on both sides take a little bit longer. And the potency method takes about nine minutes once you get to the injection. These are taking about 18 to 22 minutes per. And the nice thing about all of these are you can get to the point where you've done all the prep, you load them onto the instrument, hit run, and they will run overnight. Without that, we'd be here for weeks or have to run 24 hours a day. And I know some labs are actually running 24 hours a day. On uh, the back end of it, so once the sample gets ran through any of these instruments, 
The data has to be analyzed, of course. That's what I think they're doing right now, Maxwell and Miguel right there. That analysis takes a fair amount of time as well. Again, going back to that example, in a perfect isolated world, you can get through one sample in a short amount of time, relatively, but now you're accommodating a whole batch of samples, the analysis associated with that, the runtime associated with that. For context, we uh, advertise eh, three or four days uh, of a turnaround time. So you could come in with a sample, somebody waiting for you at the door, 9 a.m. Monday morning. Yep. It could be run through by midweek. They could be distributing it in time for the weekend rush to the dispensaries. Correct. If everything lined up perfectly, which it never does, it never does. Logistically, you know, world. deliveries from the manufacturer to the to the dispensary, all of that thing. Theoretically, yes. Once they have that certificate of analysis, but yeah, generally Monday, like a, for us, a Monday morning sample, we could have turned around in a best case scenario by like Wednesday afternoon. I think generally we would advertise Thursday in that case. How often does a product have to be tested? Obviously it's not first batch test it and they never come back. So technically every production batch from a manufacturer's perspective or a cultivator's perspective has to be tested. There are some nuances there. For example, if a product has passed, I think it's like two or three in a certain window of time, then you are actually not required to continue testing for heavy metals for, a, I think, a six-month period. That's something unique to the metals test. Potency, all the, you know, residual solvents, pesticides, everything else, that is technically required every, every batch. So when we walked in the door, we did not get this big waft of marijuana. Right, right. Um, as Zach, our producer, said, it did not smell like a Grateful Dead concert. Right. Why? Well, if you go into other labs, it may very well smell like that is part of the layout of our facility. We try to keep everything segregated. We have very strict controls on the use and the handling of the product. So if you happen to walk in the door and we just received uh, intake of a bunch of samples, absolutely, it would smell like a Grateful Dead concert. But because of how we control where the product is even being stored, where it's being held, to minimize that as much as possible. I mean, it is just occupational hazard, I guess. I mean, I tell everybody this all the time. Be prepared for your clothes to smell, your backpack to smell, anything that you bring on site in here, you will leave and somebody inevitably is going to say, wow, you stink. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and the other thing to consider, you know, it's not like we've got thousands and thousands of pounds of product here. People are only sending us a few grams at a time. And so it's really just, we're not dealing with that much product. That was Taylor Coomer of the marijuana testing company, PlantSafe. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Samantha Larned and Phil Howard. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.